0: To the Microbinfeed podcast. Here we'll, we will be discussing topics in microbial bioinformatics. We hope that we can give you some insights, tips, and tricks along the way. There's so much information we all know from working in the field, but nobody really writes it down. There's no manual, and it is assumed you'll pick it up. We hope to fill in a few of these gaps. My co-hosts are Dr. Nobil Ali Khan of Enterobase Grape Tree and Break Fame, and Dr. Andrew Page of such works as Plasmatron 5000, Rory, and Gubbins. I am Dr. Lee Katz, and you might know me from my tree-making pipeline mastery or my SNP pipeline live set. Both Nabil and Andrew work at the Quadrum Institute in Norwich, UK, where we work on microbes in food and the impact on human health. I work at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and am an adjunct professor at the University of Georgia in the US. So uh,
1: in terms of metagenomics, you know, uh, there's a huge amount of interest in that at the moment, and a lot of people are in algorithms in particular, um, I just want to first of all say that if you're doing 16S like V1, V2, or V4, this kind of thing, you're probably doing pretty poor science. There's very few use cases these days uh, in you know proper international world-leading science where 16S will actually give you something useful. You've got to be doing you know long-read sequencing, uh, metagenomic sequencing, or something really interesting with a let's say short-read metagenomics, say, creating mags or something like that, metagenomic assemblies. So, yeah, 16S is dead. Please do not do any more tools for <laughs> it. Um,
2: although it is quite an important little, uh, little, little sequence. Um, one, one thing to add with 16S I learned the other day. 16S has one advantage in that you will get more OTUs on your 16S than you probably will with your shotgun. That's because you're amplifying and you'll get better coverage of the abundance of species there. But that's about it.
1: <laughs> yeah, but more of, uh, of what? You know, what's it telling you? If you, if you get an OTU, which is 90% uh, away from anything that's been seen before, what does that tell you? You don't know the recipe. You don't have to grow a bug. You don't know what the bug does. You don't know what genes it has. You don't know anything about it. It's just a bug. Whereas at least if you do shotgun, you've got a general idea of, okay, I've got something here.
2: It's kind of like salmonella, but it's not. But even in the whole genome shotgun space, there's a lot of tools out there. Uh, If we're talking about taxonomic classification, where you've just got a set of reads and we're answering this question, what is in the sample? You've got approaches like Megan or Kraken or Sigma or Midas or Metaflion or Motus, and all of these are doing very different methods. Some are using... Conserved housekeeping genes. Some are using unique markers. Some are using whole genomes as references in their databases. I mean, there's really not that much scope for someone else to come in and write a new tool using shotgun metagenomics.
1: Although they do all give you different answers, so you know, maybe if someone could write a tool to give you the one answer,
0: meta meta (laughs) (laughs) A
1: tool that actually gave you the right answer. Yeah,
0: that'd be great.
1: <laughs> yeah, you I mean, uh, people have done a great job with all these different tools. You know, there's some amazing tools out there and some amazing work out there. And it would take you a lot of work to break into this area, you know, with a brand new tool. So I would say just concentrate on doing things like coming up with better databases to feed into these tools. So, like Lee, you had that uh, calamari.
0: Yeah, thanks for, for asking about it. You had so the, the <laughs> I had the calamari. Um, with metagenomics, we have um, we have software that we shouldn't be rewriting because that field is saturated. But it turns out that the databases can definitely use a lot of fixing. And so I've been working on a project called Cracking with Calamari. And it's going to have some really good um, optimizations. I described it on um, my poster, which is on my GitHub. Um, and I think that we can post that in the show notes too. Um, and it and it, uh, it does let you have a lot of unsaturated, uh, un, unclassified reads, but at the cost of it being um, really specific and you don't get a lot of uh, false hits. There is uh, also a problem, I think that Adam Philippi's lab did a study uh, a few years ago showing that if you saturate your database, multiple assemblies per species, you actually get a problem in Kraken where the where each camera is just found across the board and you get hits that are just specific for a genus instead. And so you start getting worse and worse results, ironically.
2: That's crazy. No, there's definitely an issue of sample bias in your metagenomic uh, databases you have to take care of. With the Kraken though, uh, they have made a lot of changes from Kraken to Kraken 2. And they have added a sort of sanity check with uh, bracket which is doing some Bayesian mm-hmm. magic to kind of tidy, tidy up that, that report you get out of Kraken. So I was, that's kind of my favorite at the moment though. I, re, I really like the output from Bracken for that. It's much simpler, much more sensible than, than what it used to be.
1: And onto assemblers, you know, um, metagenomic assemblers, there's a lot of them. And some of them have been around for a few years, but again, fundamentally, a lot of them are doing similar stuff. Now, in many cases, you can get better assemblies with higher depth data and that's really all you need to get better assemblies and there are some very clever things out there you know later on for uh, binning and and this kind of thing for kind of splitting these out and of course when you've got better bins you can do better assemblies mm-hmm. um so that is important and of course ultimately if you put in better quality dna it's going to be a better results what's really exciting for me is long read metagenomics because The long read metagenomics is where we can make the best possible um, input into science because you get things coming out in in one big uh, chromosome, or you get full plasmids, or you get, you can separate things out a lot better, or you can just put together all of these teeny tiny little bits that you get from short read sequencing into, you know, bigger pieces and you get a bigger uh, idea of what's going on, a better idea of what's going on. And I've seen some uh, recent papers that are quite good where people are using, say, the and methylation patterns to try and reassemble metagenomic data, which is super cool. Or then you obviously get high C, and that seems to be doing quite well. And then even then you have uh, more modern technologies like uh, long ass, which is using a really funky way of putting in mutations and then doing assembly. So there, you know there's lots of good things in the space, but very few of them involve uh, writing new tools. It's really about changing how, you, how the data is processed fundamentally in, in the lab.
0: So for AMR databases, AMR has just been, it's, there's such a need for a good database. And also I feel like paradoxically it's been done to death. I don't know how you guys feel, but there's just so many databases and maybe they need to get more synchronized. And to that end, I really appreciate um, what you all did at the hackathon recently. I think, um, if I put a date on it, it was June 1st of this year. Is that right? Yes. Okay. And um, and those that URLs in the show notes. You guys um, did a great job of of compiling um, the different genes from different databases and seeing if you can get something more streamlined. Something more. Um, I guess I guess you're streamlining the the naming schemes. Because it's all
1: over the place at the moment.
0: Okay. So the problem introduces another problem. <laughs>
1: Yeah.
0: But I suppose the problem with AMR databases
1: is that there's so many competing databases and some of them are well curated, some of them are not. And some of them have been abandoned and they have stored data in a different way. Some of them have not been actually validated in the lab. Mm-hmm. And that's a problem. You know, it's garbage in, garbage out in some cases where people really are just following the herd and saying, oh, well, this is a, Makes you resistant for quinolones. It must be right when. Well, maybe there's no evidence for that.
0: Yeah, I feel like. Um, I think you touched on a good point that it really takes a consortium or or a lot of different groups of organizations to really actually get something agreed upon. And to that end, um, there are certain organizations out there. I I know that you might have mixed feelings about it, but place, but but consortiums like GMI, the Global Microbial Identifier, or domestically in the U.S. We have GenFS where USDA, CBI, CDC, FDA, we all, we all came together to see if we can come, if we can agree on uncertain things. And even before GenFS, um, we had the norms group, um, which is a consortium between FDA, USDA and CDC, where they are trying to agree upon antimicrobial, antimicrobial resistance um, naming and, um, and software techniques to use.
1: It's more fundamental than that though. I mean people can't even agree on the names of the antibiotics or the shorthand information to use or what an MIC is. In some countries the the values different are different to other countries, and that can be a problem.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. I, I wish that were better solved.
1: Yeah, and what does intermediate mean? Intermediate <laughs> resistance?
0: Some, uh, somewhere between some and a lot.
1: Yeah, it's definitely a major problem that hasn't been solved even though there's a huge amount of money available internationally for AMR. It's just one of these black holes, no, no one has taken the lead it seems, to actually solve it once and for all internationally at a global scale because ultimately it is a global problem.
2: But uh, in terms of actually synchronizing and getting some consensus on AMR definitions, there is a push. I think it was started out by the guys who set up CARD, which is one of the bigger databases, but I might be wrong. But this is one consortium that's just trying to do part of what we're talking about. And I think that's the best way in the future of actually getting some consensus. Now, this is a group that's involving NCBI, uh, Public Health Agency Canada, the guys doing RestFinder. um, and and quite a few other databases. And they're trying to find some consensus over over the AMR definitions. But regardless of whether that succeeds or not, that definitely doesn't need to be another group coming up with a rival set of databases. I would strongly recommend anybody who's interested in this space to try and actually contribute to an existing repository, or help curate an existing repository.
1: And there's a lot of tools as well out there. You know, you've got tools working from uh, assemblies, like your Approcate, and then you have tools working from raw reads, like uh, Ariba and so on. So there's like a million and one different tools doing pretty much identical things. Well, some of them actually don't do as much. Some tools don't find point mutations which cause antibiotic resistance, like gyra. Um, And others, you know, just do a quick scan for genes. And if you've got 90% of an antibiotic resistance gene, is that really antibiotic resistant or not? I mean, I would say maybe, but who's
2: who's to know? Well, because most of these may not have been tested empirically, we don't necessarily know. Yeah, so Lee, what
1: about yourself? You know, in a public health context, what would you say is antibiotic resistance if you look at the genome level?
0: Oh my gosh. I, I'll just uh, say something generic because so many other people take care of this stuff, and I don't want to misrepresent them. But I can say that some tools that we've used, um, we the royal we, um, are things like AMR Finder, Star Finder, Res Finder, all the finders. And at, at, at several points or another, people have also tested. I don't know if they're currently using um, Card or there's another one called Argonaut. I don't know. I think that's a, I think that's one that might have come and gone, but I'm not sure. It's really tough to nail down like what the best one is. Um, And then also uh, I appreciate what um, NCBI is doing. They are applying their software using uh, NARMS annotations and applying those and those genotypes online so that you can see at least a first pass analysis or or maybe it is a really good analysis. I haven't been able to ascertain it for myself.
1: Cool. So what should people actually be writing in terms of bioinformatics tools?
0: Yeah, I think this is um, this was a really good podcast on just why the field is saturated in certain places and what to avoid rewriting software on. So I think we did a good job of describing things like don't write your own AMR tool, your own aligner, don't write another assembler, don't write another uh, variant caller, Oh my gosh, what else did we talk about? Uh, Metagenomics tool. But I would say that we did go over some things that we should be doing, which is take the existing tools and seeing how you can modify it. I think that Nabil had a great point on um, if you have a good variant finder, you should tweak it to, to what you need. Or I thought that Andrew had a really good point. If you have a metagenomics analysis, you can tweak it, you can even add your own database and make it better. So, or, um, oh, or one more point you made also with metagenomics is new chemistry. New chemistry can reinvigorate these algorithms. So don't write a new algorithm, do tweak it to what's happening right now.
1: Well I'd say the exception is we should rewrite everything for long reads. So if you really wanna do something, do it for long reads or for fully complete uh, assembled genomes.
0: Yes, absolutely. Very good point. And as a
1: computer scientist, I think porting everything over to GPUs or FPGAs is great. Because it'll keep me in business for years, you know, because you fundamentally need to change how you think and you have to write things from scratch in a very different way. You can't just take a dodgy browser script, you know, and drop it in. It's not going to work.
2: Yeah, yeah that's, that's a, a completely really different way of programming. And that's it, definitely a new, exciting way of answering problems. Some problems may fundamentally not really be portable but that's something we need to explore. I don't think that's clearly defined. In terms of long reads, I think long reads, when you're working with short reads, your key issue is you cannot necessarily get out insertion sites for mobile genetic elements or even recover the incomplete phage, prophage in a a genome. And long reads are suddenly going to allow us access to the mobile Uh, and that's something that that's suffered uh, in in the field, and that's going to tell us a lot about uh, because that being a key driver driver, villains, that's going to tell us a lot, a lot of th- a lot of questions we've had for a long time, and I think getting behind that uh, is definitely the kind of tools people should write.
1: And also using things like uh, epigenetic modifications, you know, there's so much information there that we can apply in ways that we haven't even thought of yet. And uh, I think that's gonna be really exciting in years scale.
2: Yeah, we've got a lot of epigenetics that we can borrow from in the eukaryote space and the human space that hasn't necessarily filtered at the microbial space. And that's actually now something we can start thinking about. But one of the other things that's definitely gonna happen is everyone's data sets are gonna get very big it's no longer 50 genomes, hundred or 10 or 20. We're talking thousands upon tens of thousands of genomes. Uh, And so we sort of touched on the question of whole genome alignment. And I don't think there's much scope for whole genome alignment tool anymore, except that it would have to be a whole population alignment tool where you're taking an entire species and saying what is actually conserved and how does it vary and how does it, rearrange or insert across an entire species and then visualizing that. Well
1: you need graphs for that then you know and that's hardcore computer science. Yay and everything was solved in the 70s so we're fine.
2: <laughs> there are definitely some people working in this space using a lot of the graph stuff. It's it's not as trivial as you'd think because our because biology is messy. But yeah I think that's definitely the way forward with that.
0: Maybe another answer to your question is What should pe- on what should people write is uh, good visualizations. Graphics are very Definitely.
1: important. True, yeah, but uh, you have to make sure it hasn't been done before because I don't want to see yet another website that's going to kind of come and go and that's it, you know, shows something really cool, but then it disappears because it's unmaintained and people haven't given you the source code. That's a book, bear of mind, where uh, you get papers published and they link to web services, but they don't give you the code to run it, and so when that Little PhD or postdoc project ends, that's it, it's gone.
0: That's right. No, I'd
2: like to see visualization that are incorporating these large data sets and thinking more of mixed mix populations or metagenomes or populations. I don't think you can just scale Act Artemis comparison tool and just keep making bigger and better versions of that. I think we have to fundamentally change the way we think about our data and the way we look at our data.
1: I guess we've a lot to learn from people like uh, Florence Nightingale. you know? She's able to take huge amounts of data and then display it in a way that anyone could understand. And we need fundamentally new figures and ways of thinking of data and displaying data so that it can come across to people who aren't mathematical geniuses, you know, what exactly is
2: going on here? So well, are we thinking artificial intelligence? That's the buzzword these It's days. a current
1: buzzword, but uh, I think most people who use the word don't actually understand what it actually means. Um, machine learning, I think is a better way of thinking about it. And I think, yeah, you know, we can get a lot out of this, but ultimately you need good quality data going in, otherwise we'll just get garbage out. You can, you can find a signal in any uh, piece of data, but whether it's a real signal is
2: another question.
0: Thank you
2: So ultimately we're saying, don't write better tools, just do better science.
0: Well,
1: no, actually, I think you, there is an exception here, right? If, you, if there are lots of tools out there and you write a tool which is easy to install and well-documented and easy to maintain, then I think people will use that, you know? Versus some of these tools where you have to change, you know, a, a line 52 in a make file or where you have to go through 20 different uh, documents to figure out, if there is any documents to figure out what's going on and then install particular dependencies that are out of date. So, you know, if something is trivial to install, true Conda or true Docker, then I think you're you're onto a winner there.
0: Thank you all so much for listening to us at home. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and like us on iTunes or Google Play. And if you don't like the podcast, please don't do anything. This podcast was recorded by the Microbial Bioinformatics Group. The opinions expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CDC or the Quadrum Institute.